We're going to look tonight at Christ's message to the seven churches of Asia. And kind of taking an overview of these seven churches, it's going to give us a a window, it's going to give us a perspective, a view into what Christ would like to say to his churches. And if he said it to those churches back then, um, if we find ourselves in the same situation, or it certainly would be something to take to heart. Now, again, Christ wrote these individual, well, they were letters, they were individually addressed, but they were all composed into one called the book of Revelation, if you would turn there, the book of Revelation. Now, my purpose tonight is not to get into a lot of the historical, not to get into any of the geographical, cultural aspects of these churches, but rather to just look at some practical lessons that I think we can learn from these churches. Now, Christ obviously did not pick these seven churches because they were the only churches. Uh, we know that from the scriptures, there was the church at Corinth, the church at, church at Jerusalem, and Antioch. There were other churches, certainly, but he did single out seven churches. Um, I, I believe um, these churches, if you were to look at a map, they were geographically pretty close together. I mean, um, maybe in those days, they were uh, at the farthest, several days travel distance between the two most distant churches. But he didn't pick them out because they were the best. He didn't pick them out because they were the the worst, I believe. I believe he picked them out because they present a spectrum, if you would, of what he would like to speak to us today about his churches. And so uh, we're going to look at this, and hopefully we can glean some things. If you would, and if you found that in Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in my Bible... Um, so, you know, as you know, some of the chapter, the ver- numbering of the verses and some of the headings are written by man. In my Bible, I've actually scratched out where they had written the revelation of John the Apostle. <laughs> and so I kind of scratched that out and I, I, I wrote just like it says there in verse 1. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you take that word of, that has several different meanings, of can mean it belonging to Jesus Christ. So this, re- this revelation, does it mean it's belonging to Jesus Christ? Well, yes, I, I do believe that. It can also mean, however, it is um, about Jesus Christ. So is it about Jesus Christ? I would say yes, it is about Jesus Christ. That's why it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this case, it has that double meaning. It's, it definitely... Uh, says that it's, a, it's the revelation belonging to him, it's coming from him, and it's all about him. But this, this letter in particular, the, the revel, what we call the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're just going to focus on uh, the, the part, mainly Christ speaking to the seven churches of Asia. Um, and when we think about it, of course, he used a human instrument. He used the apostle John, John the Beloved, And he basically dictated this letter to John through vision and through divine inspiration. If you would, uh, one last time, we're going to stand in reverence to the Word of God. And we're going to begin reading. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read the first three verses. The Bible says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. Let's pray. Father, just pray that you would use your word by your spirit to speak to our hearts tonight, to apply the message individually, to apply the message corporately, and to just show us, even from these uh, examples, what you would have for us to work on this year as we think about charting a course. And as we look to the future, we know not what it may hold, but Lord, we know that if we trust you to give that guidance, we can be assured 
you will lead and direct in the path we should go. Thank you, and may you get all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Just a couple of things about the book of Revelation in general. In verse 19 of this very same chapter, it says, Write the things, and then it breaks it down into three categories, which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So we have past, present, and future. And uh, basically, um, you can see that when he was writing to those churches, he was writing in the present, and there were certain things he wanted to address at that. He even looked in the past a little bit. But basically, a a big portion of the book is in the future. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, and basically all the way from to 22, the end, is, is the future. But so many people think about Revelation as being what? A book of prophecy, the future. But really, um, as it says here in verse nine, 19, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter, he, he, he also dealt with the present. And I think that the whole point of this, he was writing not just to one church, but really to several churches. And so there are many applications that they could have for their daily life. So I'll just point out that the book of Revelation in particular is not just about the future. It has a lot of applications for us in the present. Um, Two main things just really jump out at me as I began reading over and preparing for this lesson. And especially in the the section that we're going to be covering, uh, the first three chapters which deal with the, the seven churches. Number one is Jesus Christ. I mean, he's all through here. Again, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, but if we were to look at all the different examples of especially the names that Jesus is referred to or called by in this book, it is quite striking. Um, look at verse 5, for example. And from Jesus Christ, who is the, and it says here, he's what? A faithful witness. It goes on, it says, And the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, uh, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, each of those phrases, we could spend time on those. We're not going to do that tonight. But I'm just pointing out that this book is filled with Jesus uh, all through the book. Again, as I mentioned, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's from him, it's, it's about him, and just it's filled with Jesus. Uh, it makes me think of that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So I wanted to point out a few things that we do see about Jesus Christ revealed through His names. In verse 5, we saw that He was the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, and Him that loved us. In chapter 3 and verse 7, he's the Holy One. He's true. He hath the key of David. He is one that openeth and no man shutteth. He that shutteth and no man openeth. In Revelations 3.14, he's the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the beginning of the creation of God. That word beginning meaning the origin or the, the starting point of the creation of God. So again, we find another confirmation of from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the creator. In Revelation 5, 5, he's the root of David. In 3, 7, he's the, he that hath the key of David. In seventeen fourteen, he's the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. In 22 and 16, he's a bright and morning star. Uh, again, uh, he's called the Son of Man, and yet he's called the Son of God. He's called he that liveth and was dead. He which searcheth the reins and hearts... And who will give unto us, every one of us, according to your works. Chapter 2 and verse 23. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet also he is the lamb which was slain. He is the word of God. Chapter 19, 13. Alpha and Omega. Beginning and the end. First and last. And I just want to make a, another comment. We won't spend a whole lot more time on that. But this book is filled with Jesus and uh, if anything we do, we approach the scriptures, it should turn our eyes upon Jesus. And certainly revelations, is a, we can get caught up in the beast or the, the prophecy or whatever, but really it should turn our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for some reason, he, he himself emphasizes 
this thought that he is the beginning and end, first and last, alpha and omega. And if you think about those three terms separately, and they're almost synonymous. And yet he uses them separately, and he wanted, he's wanting to emphasize something for us. Um, he wants us to see his eternal deity, I believe. And so uh, certainly this is quite the, quite the book for us. So this is uh, looking a little bit even at the author, looking at the purpose. He's writing to the seven churches. The second point I noticed, however, was it, it's a lot about blessings. You see, um, you, you caught that in verse 3. I've actually encountered people in life who said, I, I'm, you know, Revelation is kind of scary for me. I don't like to read it or things like that. But it, in verse 3 it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and that keep those things which are written therein. There's a blessing. And I think that was one of the main purposes of Christ writing even to his churches. He wasn't doing it just simply to castigate them, just simply to chasing them. He was doing it. He wanted these things that were written to be a blessing uh, to the churches and to us also. So as he certainly wanted to, this to be a, a blessing. I'm going to pick up in verse 4 and read a few verses. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold... He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. On a side note, this that we just mentioned there in verse 7, behold, he cometh with clouds. What the Bible is referring to is that great blessed hope. That blessed hope that we have as believers. And again, Christ is reminding us that he's writing this to be a blessing and encouragement to his people. And you know, um, I remember early in our, our marriage, my wife and I were in Panama. And we were actually riding in, a, in my old Ford Ranger truck. And for some reason, we were both lost at this point in our life. We, but for some reason, we were debating scripture and talking about Jesus and Anne made a reference to verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds. And honestly, at that time, my understanding, I had never heard anything like that. It sounded like science fiction to me. I thought she was nuts. <laughs> I had no idea that was in the Bible. Okay, She thought I was nuts. Because here I was, a professing Christian. And here she was quoting the Bible, the scripture. And you know, here I was basically denying what the scripture said. But... Um, it was just one of those things. Uh, but, you know, the blessed hope is that we expect our Lord Jesus Christ to come back. He could come back tonight. He could come back tomorrow. And may I think we've kind of grown uh, a little bit lax, maybe even sometimes, of reminding ourselves for that. Jesus Christ made a point right up front, uh, speaking to his seven churches, speaking to us as well. He wants us to remember that he's coming back could be at any time. He wants us to remember this blessed hope, and it's meant to be an encouragement, maybe a little bit of a a prod, a goad, but also an encouragement when we keep that fresh in our minds that Jesus Christ could return at any moment. It certainly will affect uh, some of the choices we make and the decisions we make. So if he wanted them these, this was written about 1,900 years ago. If he was speaking to them and wanting them to act and to live as if he was coming back at any moment, and it's past 1,900 years now, how much more so is he coming soon? Um, uh, we understand that a day with the Lord is, is a 1,000 years. And, uh, but, you know, it, he could become at any moment. We need for us not to let this grow cold, but to keep it alive and fresh in our thoughts this day, this week, and this new year. Um, he reminds us of that, not just here in this verse, in, 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 in 
chapter 1, verse 1, he said, the things, he's writing the things which must shortly come to pass. And we know a lot of these things have not come to pass yet. Like I said, from chapter 4 on, or future, and yet he said they must shortly come to pass. In Revelation 1 and 3, he said, uh, those th- keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Um, in Revelations 3 and verse 11, we're going to read where he says, Behold, I come quickly. And that's repeated several times throughout the, the book. So this is a theme that is not just here at the introduction either, but it's found throughout the whole book. So as we begin to just look at these churches um, in general, again, we're not going to dig too much into the particulars of the specifics of every church because, but I do want to point out several different things to keep in mind. These were real living churches with real people. They're saints. Although they lived in a very different time, maybe 1900 years ago, uh, it was a very different time as far as technology, a very different culture than modern day America. There are timeless principles which we can glean from this. But think about this. One of the doctrines that should jump out of us is the perpetuity of the church. And you say, what does that mean? Well, that just means that Christ has promised that his church is going to remain until his return. And you know, okay, these seven churches may not exist, but how many churches do we have spread across this world uh, today? True churches, strong churches. And so certainly we can see when God, uh, when Christ promised that his, his, his church would remain he, look at it. Oh, we've seen 1,900 years later, and his church is still here. And he's promised it's going to be here until his return. So we can certainly take comfort in that. Um, each of these churches that we're going to look at is had a pastor. Nothing mind-boggling mind, or earth-shattering there, is it? But, you know, here in, at the end of chapter 1, let me just read that a little bit. Um, I'm going to start, pick up again in in verse 12. Well, I'm going to pick up in verse 11. This is uh, the instruction that Christ gave to John to begin writing. We'll we'll start in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. We're going to find out in just a minute. Those are the seven messengers, the seven pastors of the churches. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength." And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, and here's the explanation, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Now, I, I, I purposely took the time to read that, because it's going to come back into play in just a minute. We, Beginning, basically, in chapter 2, he begins to address every church individually, but... We're going to find out in the next two chapters as we click quickly and briefly look at these churches. He's going to refer back to chapter 1 in, to each church. And so I want to just, just mention that at the beginning. Um, these seven churches we're going to look at, I would say that they had a mixture of report cards. 
I mean, some only have pretty much a good report. Some only have a bad report. Some, most of them have a mixture of, uh, he gives commendation and then he also gives uh, maybe critique. So um, we're going to see that each church um, does everything differently because there are different churches. Christ sees, uh, we're going to see also that Christ sees everything, things very differently than we do. We're going to see here that um, he talks to a church that is suffering. And, of course, we always tend to look at the negative aspect of that. But he, he gives a lot of encouragement and, and meaning to it. We look at prosperity, riches, and he, he has a different perspective of that many times. And we begin to see that as he addresses his churches. So I just would mention that as we look at these churches of Asia, Christ often has a different perspective than we do. And that's, that's why we need to get the mind of Christ. We need to find out as we chart our course, as we're thinking about the future, we need to make sure we're thinking like Christ, as we're thinking like he would think and like he would want us to think. Um, each church, of course, has a very unique and distinct personality. Um, we understand that God sets the members in the body Every single one of them. So if you're a member of this body, it's because whether you realize it or not, God put you here. God brought you here for a purpose. He also equips his members um, with spiritual gifts as he sees fit. So that while we understand that a church is going to have the same basic functions, okay, we're all going to have worship. We're all going to have prayer. We're all going to have the same ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. We're all going to have an edification, instruction of the body, witnessing, outreach, evangelism. These things are going to be common to all the churches just as they were back then. But because they have different members, because we have different gifts, each church that he deals with, he deals with them very distinctly. Very differently, because they're different personalities, they have different strengths, they have different weaknesses, and so, um, again, nothing has changed over 19 centuries. Uh, here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and yet uh, his, his churches are still unique and different, each and every one. So the things that God may be wanting to speak to our church, he may not be dealing with another church at this moment, and so we should definitely keep that in mind. Um, he doesn't compare one church to another, but he compares them to his standard. And so we, we must uh, certainly take that as a, a lesson as well. Uh, not wise to compare one church with another church, is it? Um, it's, uh, we need to be comparing ourselves to the, the standards and to the, 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 the things that Christ has established. Now, some are rebuked seven times in, in this in this passage, uh, the word repent is used. So I, I, I gathered from that that this is a spiritual battle, but it's taking place where? A big place is in the mind. That word repent, it means a change of mind. It's not only a change of action, but as we change our mind, we'll begin to change our, our course of action. And so we could certainly learn that what Christ is dealing with uh, his churches many times, he's trying to make sure that he's correcting our thinking. He's wanting us to get the right mindset. And so many times the battleground actually is in the, in the mind. Um, almost all these churches, though, are going to have some strength which Christ commends. And so, you know, what would it be today that Christ would say to Mount Zion Baptist Church, you're doing good, hold that fast, you know, keep doing that without letting down the others or without uh, neglecting those areas that are weak. But um, as we're going to look at this, at the end of every address to every church, we're going to find a, a very clear statement in there. Christ intended that not only was he addressing the seven churches individually, but at the end of them, he said to the churches, plural. And so he basically wanted us, even us nowadays, 2,000 years later, and he wanted each of those churches at the time to also take lessons from what he was telling the others. So um, while there is no perfect church, 
we're going to see an example of at least one church here that there can be a strong, a sound church. Um, I think for any missionary's dream or any pastor's dream, of course, is to establish a church that is not only sound in the faith, that is doctrinally um, sound, that, that is mature, zealous, loving. Uh, but do we expect perfection? No, I mean, we don't. But at the same time, we need to realize that, yes, there can and there should be uh, a, a certain level that Christ is going to expect us at. He doesn't expect perfection, but he does have a high standard for his people. And so we shouldn't let coldness, we shouldn't let complacency or carelessness uh, creep in there. So he, com- he complimented them when they're doing good, but he's also going to rebuke them when they don't. And so we would, we would expect the same thing today. And, and so again, it would just be, as we read through these, Maybe we would ask him, um, what would Jesus say to Mount Zion Baptist Church again? What would our, be our strengths? What would be our weaknesses? And maybe as we chart our course for this week, we could look at some of those things. Now, we could look at things that are different between all these seven churches, but everything is different about these. The geography, the culture, the size, the personality, the strengths, the problems, we could go on and on. The things that are different about every church. Again, so I won't spend any time on that. What about the things that are the same about all seven of these churches that Christ deals with? You see, because if it's the same across the board, then we can, then I think that's a fair way of comparing to say, well, you know, are we meeting up to that? Let, let's look at what happens to each of the seven churches. Um, number one, Christ reveals something about himself to each church. It's like um, a special signature he puts on each one. He's going to address them in a certain way and, and giving a certain part of his person, about, of his position to each church that is distinct. And so he, he addresses, he reveals something about himself to each church. And I think we can take that away today. Christ is going to reveal himself to this body as we allow him in a way, different way um, to us a little bit. Um, I mentioned they all have a pastor because in every case we're going to see Christ addressing the pastor. Um, he says, let's just begin in chapter 2 and verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right, and we, if we reference back to chapter 1, we saw that the stars in, in Christ's hands, he said those were the messengers, the angels, the messengers that, that Christ is. And here we're going to see that pattern repeated all seven times. So Christ is definitely, specifically speaking, to the pastor as the leader. But, of course, and then, uh, meaning he also speaking to the whole congregation as well. But certainly it, it's worthy to know that Christ addresses the pastor and the thing another thing that's similar about it they all have a pastor he's addressing the pastor but to remember that Christ is in the middle of each church you said remember in the chapter one it said Christ I'm the one that's in the middle of those seven candlesticks so we can take comfort as a true church of Christ that his presence is with us that he is in the midst and and that can be a great blessing and encouragement to us can it um they all receive either a commendation or a condemnation, sometimes both. Okay, so that's something we're going to see in all seven of these letters. They all receive a caution and or a counsel regarding how to basically fix the problem. They all have something counterfeit or false in the midst. And so that'll be something we're going to look at. Um, and then they all receive a conqueror's or you could say an overcomer's message. We're going to see that on each church. They receive um, a message. And it usually goes like this at the end. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural. So what we're going to do, just briefly and quickly, we're going to look at these seven churches. We're going to look at the six points of them using the letter C. And uh, I normally don't do alliteration. <laughs> but for those of you that like alliteration, it's good because you're going to be able to write these things down. With the le- all, they all begin with the letter C. Um, number one is Christ. Uh, 
How does he reveal himself to every church? Number two, what commendation or condemnation does he make to this particular church? So, uh, number three, what caution or counsel does he give to this particular church? Number four, what counterfeit do we see mentioned in, in there? Number five, what is the conqueror's challenge related to this particular church? And probably this is one of the more important. Number six, what is the chief application that we can apply from it? So let's quickly just jump in on, on that. The church of Ephesus, chapter two and verse one. How does Christ, point one is Christ, how does he reveal himself? It says here in, in verse one, um, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Talking about the pastors, guess where those pastors are, are kept and guarded in the, the right hand of Jesus, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So that is Christ referring to himself. He's making known his presence amongst his churches. His pastors, his churches, are something specially treasured and guarded by Jesus Christ himself. Now, that should be very sobering to us. We, we could look at, we want to think of the importance of, uh, there's no other institution on this earth that Christ uh, has such a special regard for. We know that he died for the church. So certainly he's emphasizing he, his churches, his pastors are specially treasured and guarded. And I think we should take the same care and concern as well for his church and for our pastors. What commendation or condemnation does he give? Well, thankfully for Ephesus, he has a lot of good things to say about this church. Um, of course, we can read more about this church in the book of Ephesians, but they did have one glaring fault. So let's first of all just look at the commendation. He had a lot of good things to say. I know thy works, thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. So he, he, he goes through and he lifts quite a few things that they did. Um, he's commending them, saying, you know, in this area you're definitely doing a good job. But what about the caution or counsel? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. Remember from whence thou art fallen. And he uses this uh, word, repent. Do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. Now, um, to me, that's probably the most severe warning you're going to see in this thing. He's actually threatening them. The fact that he said... You are a candlestick. You are a church, true church, recognized by me. But he says, if you're not careful, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove your candlestick. I, th- I believe he's saying, he's communicating, you're going to lose your status as a genuine church of me. And what would be the cause of that? They have lo- left thy first love. Now, several have made a distinction. Does it say they lost their first love? No, it's not something that is gone and can't be restored. He said they've left it. They walked away from it. They have um, let, it, they let it grow cold. They have been the ones that it's not that just um, it was an accidental loss or anything. They purposely have left their first love. And so we certainly can take uh, caution. We can certainly uh, take this that we too should be striving to rekindle that first love. I think that would be the chief application here. Look at, look at verse 7. What is the specific message that he has to the overcomers? Um, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto... And again, notice, although he's been addressing one church... He does this repeatedly. When he, he begins this overcomer's challenge, he begins to switch and says, listen what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So um, is this something that was only unique promise given to the church at Ephesus? 
No, he's saying this is applying he, in the context to the seven churches, but it's also applying uh, by application to, to all his true churches. Those that overcome, guess what we have the promise of? We have the promise of being able to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So it's interesting here um, that in each case, these five points, and again, we're just going to go pretty quickly. But I, I want to point out one thing here in chapter 2 about Ephesus. How did Jesus Christ refer to himself? He, he referred to himself as he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Well, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 13, how does he recite, um, refer to himself there? He's the one in the midst of the seven candlesticks, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the foot, and the girt with the paps, with a golden girdle. Then in verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Does it sound familiar? Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden stars. Okay, so what I'm saying is you're going to see in each and every case here, as he addresses each church individually, it also references something back in chapter 1. I found that quite interesting. Um, Here he's the one that holds the seven stars in his right hand. And that was to the church of Ephesus. So let's go on to uh, the church at Smyrna. We're going to look at again just quickly these, these points. The church of Smyrna has several things, good things to say about them. Especially in regards to their spiritual, spiritual riches. They had faced and they would face many trials and tribulations. And so they received a special word of encouragement and the promise of a crown for being faithful unto death. So again, how does Christ now refer to the church at Smyrna? Um, this says, These things saith the first and the last, which, is, which was dead and is alive. Which was dead and is alive. And I, we won't take time now, but I had to think about that a lot. Because if I was going to say it, I would have said which was alive and is now known. I mean, it's, it just sounded really backwards to me, which was dead and is now alive because we know that Christ, well, anyway, it sounded unique to me in the way he put that. I don't know if it comes across to you. Um, he's saying, this thing saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And I, I, I guess I think of God as always being alive. And yet he's referring specifically to his crucifixion, his death and burial. And now he's saying, I'm alive. And so why does he refer to that, to the church of Smyrna? Well, let's see. What commendation does he give them? He says, I know that your works, thy tribulation and poverty... And notice here, again, how I mentioned, he doesn't see their poverty just as poverty. What does he say? You, you think you're poor, but I'm going to tell you something. You're rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now he gives, so he's saying, you guys have really hang, hung in there in some tough times. You've had tribulation. Here you are in poverty. You're, you're suffering opposition of blasphemy. Um, and he says, guess what? You have more trouble ahead. He says, you're going to suffer some more. You're going to have um, imprisonment, he says, even unto death. And so here he is. He's commending them. And he's saying, guess what? He's giving a word of caution. Look out. You know, we like to think that the Christian life is, is always going to be smooth, isn't it? Uh, but what is Christ teaching us here through this church? Um, Number one, poverty, just because we're poor doesn't mean we're poor, does it? Just because we're rich doesn't mean we're rich. And the same thing applies, though. Many times what we view as a, a suffering and tribulation uh, is going to bring great reward and, and recompense in the world to come. He's saying, you know, you think you're poor and you think you're suffering. He says, but really you're rich because you have great rewards awaiting you. 
Um, he says, fear none of those things which shall so suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. You shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee, what, a crown of life. He promised him a special reward, a crown of life for those that were faithful unto death. What was false counterfeit about this one? He mentions the false Jews that were in the midst. Okay, so now he goes to, he begins, he's addressed the church of Smyrna, and now he opens it up again. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto what? The churches, plural. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of what? The second death. He's saying, don't be, you know, one of our greatest fears in life is death. And he's saying, constantly, you've had suffering, you've had tribulation, you're going to see more. But guess what? Take courage, be strong, because he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And that truly is the blessed hope that we have, isn't it? That Christ come back and that his resurrection gives us life as well. And that we don't have to fear the second death. So um, what, what can we learn from the church at Smyrna? Well, we should be a church willing to suffer for Christ. Again, the Christian walk is not always going to be peaches and cream, roses, uh, a bed of a rose garden, as they say. Um, he's saying here, they were already in suffering and tribulation. Um, he commended them for that, but he says, guess what? Um, there are rewards for suffering for Christ. And, I, you know, there's something we as uh, Americans, we just haven't faced much of it, have we? Um, but are we willing to? Are we willing to? Whether it be in small ways, uh, like he, he talks here of uh, uh, blasphemy, of people speaking evil of us or different things because of our stand for Christ or whatever. Are we willing to take a stand for Christ? Are we willing to suffer on his behalf? And he's saying there are rewards for it. But um, he's just uh, saying, you know what? We should be willing to suffer. I think that's one thing we can take away for certainly from the church at Smyrna. Pergamos, the third church. Um, and unto the angel, verse 12, unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write. Okay, how does Christ refer to himself? These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. So he's referring to himself as the one with a two-edged sword. Does that sound kind of threatening, foreboding? He says, I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So he's commending them. This is part of their commendation. They held fast his name. They have not denied his, the faith. And even there's one of them in particular he, he calls out for being a martyr unto death. But... What is the caution or the bad things that he says? Uh, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast also thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And again, we find that word, repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's that visualization of the, the sword. He's talking a lot about judgment. He says, you've, you've done some good things. He commends them for that. But he also says, there's some issues with your doctrine. What is the counterfeit we find here? It's the false doctrines that were in their midst. The doctrines of the Nicolaitans. The doctrines of the of uh, those that hold to the doctrine of Balak and Balaam. And so, we won't, again, we won't spend a whole lot of time on that, but false doctrine can creep into a church, can it? And it's certainly something to be guarded against, and it, and it can be subtle, and we can be doing a lot of good things, but if we're letting false doctrine into the church, it's certainly going to bring judgment. He's speaking as the one who holds the double-edged sword, and he's going to come and give the just uh, reward. So again, he, he deals with the, uh, the verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit now saith unto who? The churches, plural. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, 
and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Did you know that you have to look forward to a white stone with a new name written? (laughs) That nobody else is going to know the name that you have written on that stone. Did you know that? Did you know that to him that overcometh I will give to eat of the hidden manna? I mean, these are things a lot of times we don't think about when, when we're on our way to heaven. But, you know, he's giving us a, a, a good insight into some things that we can look forward to. And again, he's not just dealing with the church of, of Pergamos now. Again, starting in verse 17, he says, let it, he, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural. And he's giving the overcomer message. So, I just hope you can see, I mean... We could go a lot deeper and a lot uh, more in depth than a lot of these points, but just these three chapters, Christ dealing with the seven churches, are are rich and deep in the person of Christ, in the rewards he's promised, and in the applications that we can can, uh, have for us today. Let's look at verse 18, moving on. Thyatira, and unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write... These things saith, now how does Christ refer to himself? Um, The Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Does that sound familiar? We read that again back in in chapter 1. So again, every time Christ refers to himself, it's from an aspect that he's already addressed in chapter 1. But um, certainly quite an imposing figure, isn't it? Somebody that, whose eyes are like unto a flame of fire, his feet are like fine brass. How does he address the common, co- commendation uh, for Thyatira? Um, I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. So he does say, okay, you have... Uh, faith, he says, patience, that works. Um, you, you have charity. He, he's commending them in that. Now comes the the uh, the caution. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants and commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So, what is the issue he's dealing with here? Well, they have a false teacher in the church, don't they? False teacher, and in this case, it was a woman. Her name was Jezebel. And not only that, um, it talks about, um, I gave her the space to repent of her fornication. She repented not. I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death. So not only had they allowed Uh, this false teaching into the church, but now it was multiplying. She had children. She was seeing some fruit in the church, but it wasn't the fruit that Christ wanted to see. So here at the church of Thyatira, the counterfeit was this false teacher. What does he say to them? Well, I behold, but I say unto you and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that you what that what you have already hold fast till I come. He's saying, you know what? I pointed out some things you're doing really good. You got charity, you got works, you got some faith. He says, keep up those good things. And sometimes, you know, that's what we need to do, isn't it? We need to hold fast in the things that we're we're, we're holding. He says, but you're letting this false teacher. In and she's in your midst, she's multiplying, and she says, Watch out, anybody that's in mixed in with, with her is going to get it uh, as well. So, Christ is the one who he reveals himself, his eyes like unto a flame of fire, his feet are like fine brass. He commends them for the, some things, so he cautions them about the false teachings. What can we learn about this? We should be a church that rejects the low morality and the false teachers both inside and out. You see, because false teachers, where do they start? They start many times on the outside. And then slowly but surely, even the teaching can come into the church. Or uh, sometimes they'll spring up from within the church. 
But the thing is, he's cautioning us about the, the, uh, the danger of these uh, false teachers. So, just a, a quick summary. In Ephesus, we had a church that needed to rekindle that first love. In Smyrna, a church that was willing to suffer for Christ. In Pergamos, they were a church with sound doctrine, but they had allowed some, some, some I mean, they were a church without sound doctrine, and they had allowed some, to, some false doctrines of the Nicolaitans and the, to creep in. Here in Thyatira, uh, he was warning about false teachings. And so he's, by default, he's also encouraging us to live a holy and separated life. Um, Sardis, let's move on to Sardis. And unto the chapter 3, verse 1, unto the angel and church of Sardis, how does Christ refer to himself? These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, referring back to chapter 1 there. I know thy works. Here's the warning, that, or the commendation. Well, really, there is no commendation for Sardis. There's no, nothing good he can say. He said, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Really, there's a slight, there's still a church, there's still a little bit there, but he's saying, you have a name that you're alive, but guess what? You're dead. Um, There's really very little good that he has to say about the church of Sardis. And he says, what little you have, hold on to it. Uh, I've not found thy works perfect before God. So really there's very little commendation. There's a lot of counsel. That hold on what you got. But he says, what, what is the problem here in Sardis? The wrong motives? Wrong methods or wrong mission? I don't know. But he said, your works were not perfect before God. They had some false works. So not only can you have false teachers, false doctrine, as we've seen, but now what? Creeping in false works. You know, some churches may be going 90 to, to nothing. They may be doing a lot of things. But, you know, we've got to be careful in that, too. Just doing things, just working, just doing works does not mean that this is what is going to be pleasing to God. I don't know what the issue was. He really doesn't give us a whole lot of insight here in this particular church at Sardis. But he says, you have a name that you're alive. You know, all across town, I guess your reputation amongst, I guess, again, Christ sees things so much differently than we do. I guess they probably had a name that they were on fire. A church that was, you know, doing a lot for God. They were probably proclaiming themselves, yeah, guess what? Look at what we're doing. But he says, guess what? You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. And he says, the few of you that do remain that are true, hold fast. But he says, uh, really, there's not much much to commend there. But look again, look, see what he gives for the overcomers. He that overcometh... The same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So there's a message to those that would overcome, talking about the righteousness of Christ being imputed to them. They wouldn't lose, uh, their name would not be blotted out of the, the book of life, and that should definitely confirm and encourage us as far as to the doctrine of our eternal security. What, what message does he have for the churches? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Oh, okay, and, and that's a... He, this is the message. He's not going to blot our name out of the book of life, and he will confess our name before his Father and before the angels. Again, many of these things, we... we our gifts are, are things to look forward to that we haven't really thought about much. We just think of a, a ticket to heaven, a, we're going to be escaped from hell, and yet he's, he's promising us so many things. The imputed righteousness of Christ, being clothed in white raiment, we'll have our name in the book of life and be confessed before God the Father and the holy angels. So it's interesting that each and every one of them, he's giving 
uh, even, the, even this church that was dead, he was giving promises to the few believers that rem- remained. What do you do if you find yourself in a, in a weak or struggling church? Well, hold fast. Hold fast. Don't, don't move until the Lord moves you. And he says, hold fast and just know that it's guaranteed uh, the reward and promises they has for you. The, book, the Church of uh, Philadelphia, chapter 3 and verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things. How does Christ refer to himself? Uh, he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And again, you can go back to chapter 1 and see the parallels to that. But how does he, what does he commend about the church in Philadelphia? I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. No man can shut it. For thou hast what? A little strength. Thou hast kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. But behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So he's commending them. These, these Philadelphians... We know that they had a little strength. He said they had kept his word. They had not denied his name, but they had allowed in their midst, again, these false Jews. That was the counterfeit. They were allowing maybe some of the doctrines. I don't know. Again, he doesn't really specify the whole details, but he was allow- they were allowing these false Jews in their midst, and it was affecting their spiritual walk. What does he promise them? Verse 10 because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. He's encouraging them. You know, you've held on for this long. Just hold on a little longer. It won't be long. I'm going to be with you in your hour of temptation which shall come soon. Him that overcometh, verse 12, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of the heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Did you know that he's going to make us a pillar? In the house of his, of God, in in the name of the city, he's going to write on it the the name of the city of his God, which is New Jerusalem, and he says, "I will write upon him my new name." You know, Christ is giving us kind of a a window into some of the treasures, into the promises, into some of the the great rewards we can look forward to, and, and I think many times we've we've neglected to even appreciate this or that what what should what can we gain from the the church at philadelphia well this church he says they had stood firm stood firm they've kept the word of his patience they had a little strength philadelphia is a church that perseveres in difficulty and again it's kind of like that kind of like the other one are we willing to suffer but in those times of suffering um we, don't give up. Don't give up. He's saying, if you're having a, a hard time right now, he's saying, if you're struggling, he's saying, hold on just a, a little bit longer. Uh, hold fast. He says, we should persevere in that difficulty. So I think the application we should have from Philadelphia, we should be a church that perseveres in difficulty. Laodicea, the last one, we'll wrap this up. Jesus Christ, how does he refer to himself? Laodicea. Um, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So, again, go back to chapter 1. But the Amen, it's a a word of termination, finality, saying it is is finished. And he's saying, this is it. He's laying it down. I know thy works, here's their commendation, that thou art neither cold nor hot. Well, there's no, not much commendation here. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, 
I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, again, we see Christ's perspective versus their perspective. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy me of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. How different is the perspective of the people of this church than what Christ is presenting? He says, you know, you think you're, you're rich, you're not. He says, you think you're, you're on fire, you're not. He says, you're cold. He says, um, you think you, you're, you're, you're dressed in my righteousness. He says, you're not, you're negative. And he's, he's saying, look out. He's saying, um, a, lot of, a lot of condemnation for this church, right? But, you know, we can take, take comfort. And even, even though the church of Sardis, even though the church here at Philadelphia, even though there's little good that Christ found about these churches, do you know what? In each case, he has something, some promise that he gives to the faithful remnant. He says here, um, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Number one, he's giving them a chance to make it right. Number two, Um, verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, I hope that wasn't too much too quick. Um, The chief application we can get from this besides some of the things I mentioned up front, but Number one, the church of Ephesus shows us that we need to be a church that is striving to rekindle that first love. You know, we can be doing so many things. We can get so busy. But if we've lost that first love, um, it can all be in vain. The church of Smyrna, a church willing to suffer for Christ. And again, we've, we've enjoyed for too long freedoms, liberties, we've abundance, things like that. But guess what? Um... Are we willing, the day is coming, and it may be sooner than we think, where to be a Christian, it's going to cost us something. Are we willing to suffer? The church there at Smyrna is a, is a good example to us. The church at Pergamos, they're a church that had fallen into false doctrine. Beware of the compromise of false doctrine, and that, that's the warning to us. Um, are we a church that Christ would, could come to us and say, you, you're, you're, what you say is what I say. We agree because um, we have a sound and solid doctrine based on the scriptures, based on what he is saying. Thyatira, do we allow false teachers to creep in from inside or out? Sardis, they said a church that is a spiritually uh, dead, dead. And yet there were a few members there. And so he said, you need to be a church that has zeal, that has uh, just energy and, and things like that. So what, just a couple of things. What else should we be? We should be, as was mentioned this morning, a church that, uh, a singing church. <laughs> we should be a church with its eyes fixed on Jesus. You know, I think if you could sum all these up, um, one thing about it, Christ over and over and again is presenting different aspects of his person, of his promises, and especially the future reward to his churches. And what is he trying to say? We need a church with its eyes fixed on Jesus and the author and finisher of our faith. And if we would do that, we, I think we're going to find ourselves in the right position. Secondly, a church that is watching for Christ's soon return. Again, he time and time again, he's giving us little tidbits and little hints. Um, behold, because I come quickly, he says. He says, uh, he, he says he's going to be coming with clouds. And he's time and time reminding us that we need to be a church that is watching for Christ's soon return. And lastly, he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We need to be a church that not as listening to the noise, not as just listening to even the preacher, but as listening to that still small voice, the Holy Spirit, a church that hears and obeys what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, so many good things we can, we can learn from these seven churches. 
and um, things that I think Mount Zion Baptist Church, is we, if we are going to chart a course to go forward, we can either, we can drift, we can go out with a determination in a certain direction, or we can make sure that we, before we get going anywhere, we focus our eyes upon Jesus. Now, a lot, again, a lot of information I want to, just wanted to show you, but you know, we have a, a tremendous amount of precious promises that many times we're, we overlooked. We haven't even really touched the hem of the garment of the things that God has prepared for them who love him. The promises that we have there in Romans 8 uh, to the overcomers, he promises us there in Romans chapter 8 that uh, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord. And so, you know, all these themes begin to take place. Are we living in victory or are we just living again in, in stagnation or, or in, in mediocrity or moderation? So uh, certainly one message for all of us. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches.